Today's passage comes from Mark 15, verses 16 to 39. It's quite a long verse, but I think it's very necessary for us to read it together, to feel the weight of the words, and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. If you are able, could you please rise for God's word, for it is life to us. We will read from the ESV version, but whatever translation you have is, is fine. But we'll also have it on the screens for you as well. Mark 15, verses 16 to 39 says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him a wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. They crucified him and dividing his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription on the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And, they, and with him, they crucified two robbers one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. And the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Even these words as we read it, it's just so powerful, God. And perhaps this is a story we've heard over and over again for those who have been a part of the church. But may it not be the same story tonight, God. Would you do something new amongst us, God? We ask that your Holy Spirit would touch down and transform us and unite us with you. And God, if there are things in our life that need to be removed, cleansed, reconciled back to you, would you do it, God? 
And I pray, God, that, Lord, as I speak your words, it will not be my words, but it may be yours. Sanctify your servant, O God. And I pray that the ears of all your hearers will be open. And more importantly, may our hearts be ready to receive the good news of Jesus Christ and his love tonight. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have your seats. In um, 2008, uh, there was a movie, one of the best movies of that year, called Avengers Infinity War. It came out grossing $2 billion worldwide, and it was the fourth highest grossing movie of all time. Do you guys remember Avengers Infinity War? The premise was about this supervillain named Thanos who was on a mission to collect six infinity stones to complete this powerful gauntlet, which was like this robot glove that had these stones. And whoever wore that glove possessed the most power and they could have one wish. And at the snap of a finger, that wish would come true. And for Thanos, he was going to wish that half of the universe would disappear. People, half of them, would be killed too. And this was his idea of uh, fixing the problem of uh, low resources, overpopulation. He thought this would save humanity. But of course, we can all tell he was crazy, <laughs> madman. And it was up to the Avengers to rescue the world from this evil Thanos. But uh, if you watched Infinity Wars, if you didn't, I'm sorry, I'm gonna ruin the ending. You had plenty of chances. Uh, but how did the story end? In the end, we find out that Thanos collects all six stones. He puts on the gauntlet and he snaps his finger. And right in front of our eyes, what happens? All the Avengers, all half of the population just turn into dust. And that's how the movie ends. The credits roll in and I was like, what? I remember watching this movie and I was utterly in disbelief just with a sense of shock and also feeling like it can't end that way. There's no way. I knew there was another part coming, but it wasn't until the next year. I was like, oh, man, this sucks. And I remember walking away from that movie theater feeling so hopeless and so sad. And this was a fiction. This was a movie. But I love the franchise Avengers. And it was a feeling I wasn't used to. You see, this feeling of defeat, of our heroes, our favorite ones being defeated, and the enemy winning, it, it's just a heavy feeling, especially when it's someone you had hoped in. Doesn't feel right. To a greater degree, I think the events of Good Friday, Jesus of Nazareth, who was promised to be the Messiah, the king of the world, the feeling of seeing this Jesus, the promised king, being crucified, I can only imagine how crushing this must have been. The Messiah was supposed to come and save God's people. He was promised from the beginning of time that every oppression, every sadness will be redeemed when the Messiah comes. So people had hoped that this Jesus was him. And man, did he fit that profile. Jesus preached some amazing sermons. People were like, oh my goodness. He did some crazy healings. People who couldn't walk could walk. He even raised a dead guy back to life. 
There was nothing he couldn't do. He was the superhero of all superheroes, the avenger of all avengers. He was what they had hoped was the promised Messiah. And this is why on Palm Sunday, people were so excited to worship Jesus. They wave their palm branches and say, yes, he's the king, the promised Messiah. Hosanna, Hosanna. He's come to save us. They were so excited. That happened on Sunday. But a few days later, on Good Friday, things take a dark turn. Jesus, this promised Messiah was accused, convicted of blasphemy by the Jewish council. The most religious people in the land convicted him of lying against God. And he was officially sentenced to death by Pilate, the governor of the enemy nation. Rome carried out that death sentence. What happened? What happened on that day? Which takes me to my first point. The cross, the death of hum humanity's sin. The cross represents humanity at its ultimate worst. The passage that I just read today, the passage that we visited several times again and again at this time of year, this is a story of humiliation and shame of someone who was ripped of all dignity, humanity. And if you didn't know who this Jesus was, this description of someone who went through something like this would only fit the worst criminal. Someone who must have done something so horrible, so unredeemable, that he deserves this kind of death. For us who live in the Western modern society, we actually have a hard time comprehending how gruesome, how brutal the crucifixion is. Because in our time today, thank God, thank God there's nothing that even compares to this form of brutality and capital punishment. You know, in 2004 of April, there was a story that broke out on CBS 60 Minutes. I know 2004 is a really long time. <laughs> But this, this story was uncovering the abuse and torture of prisoners held in the Iraq's prison of Abu Ghraib. Uh, there was a whistleblower, uh, a soldier by the name of Joe Darby, a U.S. soldier who discovered photos of Iraqi prisoners being tortured and abused by fellow U.S. soldiers. And this... Uh, Soldier Joe Darby decided to tell the authorities and report the abuse. And when this news leaked out that there was this ugly abuse of prisoners, there were images of people who were naked, uh, carried on a leash. There were people who were brutally beaten and killed, and there were soldiers posing next to them, smiling. When those images came out, and maybe for some of you, you were like, I remember that. It was sick. It made everyone sick. The whole world agreed, this is just not right. There's something so wrong about this. It's so inhumane, what the U.S. soldiers have done. And you know what? These, these soldiers were caught 
They were put on trial, convicted, and put into prison. And even though the Iraqi prisoners were considered enemies of the U.S., everyone agreed that the punishment that they received was far beyond what they deserved. In fact, it wasn't even enough that these soldiers were put to jail, but the president of the United States at the time, President George W. Bush, and his defense secretary, Donald Rumsfeld, had to issue a public apology to the world, apologizing for what happened. And the entire nation was shamed by the act of a few soldiers who acted so wickedly. And I mentioned this story because what Jesus went, on the, what went through on the cross was far beyond. And I say this because the abuse at this prison shows, yes, how deep and dark and twisted people can be. People can be truly evil. It shouldn't have happened. But this violence actually happened behind closed doors. And it wasn't all the army, but it was a few twisted, sick individuals that carried it out. But even for them, they knew it was wrong because they did it behind closed doors. They didn't want this story to leak because there was something wrong about what they were doing. It was only by accident, by chance, that their crime was convicted. But the events that unfolded on Good Friday, the, the events that happened to Christ was not done in secret. It was a public spectacle. Everyone witnessed the death of Christ. And here's the thing. Jesus never lied. He never blasphemed. He wasn't an insurrectionist like some slandered him to be. The only crime they said he was guilty of and it hung above him was that he was the king of the Jews. You know, the brutality of the crucifixion is not just the nails that drove through his wrist and his foot. It's not just the death, but it's the sheer shame and humiliation that crucifixion represented. You see, even before Jesus went on the cross, and you think that's the worst part, but it wasn't. Even before he goes on the cross, scripture says that Jesus was stripped naked immediately after he was convicted, and he was beaten and flogged and spat on by Roman soldiers who had no relationship to him. They don't even have a reason to beat him up, but they did. And they mocked him, made him wear a robe, and put the crown of thrones on his head. And he, they screamed at him, Hail, King of the Jews, while striking him again and again. This was before the crucifixion even began. The point was to humiliate Jesus and put him to shame. After this, we're told that Jesus' body was so beaten so battered, he was so weak that he could not carry that cross up the walk of shame to Golgotha. Isn't that so brutal that they would make those who are sentenced to death to carry their own cross, the torture device that they would die on? He was asked to carry, but Jesus couldn't do it. And so they actually, there was no one who could carry that cross for Jesus, not even Jesus' friends. Simon Peter, remember him, Jesus' closest disciple. Just a day ago, Peter promised, Simon Peter said, Jesus, I will never leave you. Even if everyone deserts you, I will never leave you. But by this point, Peter was long gone. 
he, has, he had disowned Jesus three times. So Roman grabs a random guy walking by. Ironically, his name is Simon. And this Simon, who wasn't Simon Peter, carried Jesus' cross, a cruel reminder that Jesus was indeed abandoned by all, that even his closest disciple, Simon, wasn't there with him. Jesus was truly alone. And finally, when the crucifixion takes place, we are told that he's naked. The paintings that we see of Jesus doesn't ever show a naked Jesus, a beaten Jesus. It's too shameful. We couldn't handle it. But that's the point of this crucifixion. It was supposed to be too much, too cruel, too shameful. Complete humiliation, stripping someone of their dignity, their humanity. The crucifixion was the worst punishment reserved for only the worst of the worst of the worst in society. In fact, the Romans didn't even do crucifixions to their own people. The Romans were not allowed to carry that out because it was so hard. Describing the horrors of crucifixion, scholar Fleming Rutledge says this, a crucified person gasping and heaving on the cross is forced to be his own executioner. He's not even allowed the perverse dignity of having a human being corresponding to himself who hangs or decapitates him. He dies truly and completely alone with the weight of his own body killing him as it hangs, causing his own diaphragm to suffocate him. You see, the Roman crucifix was indeed invented by humans, and it was the worst torture device created to not only kill another human being, but to strip them of everything, even the dignity and humanity that God created them to be. The cross was the depth of human evil, total depravity. And what I tell you today, I know the story is really hard. It's not fiction. It's not Hollywood. And you wonder, who in the world would ever deserve this kind of death? Even the worst criminals, even your worst enemy, I don't think we dare think, oh, man, this, this is what they deserve. But yet, this was the way our Lord and Savior Jesus died. But there must be some mistake, some people thought. How can the Messiah be treated this way? What crime did he commit? And you know what? For the disciples who were with him, they were probably wondering the same thing. The reason there was no one next to Jesus is because there's just no way that the chosen one, the Savior, the hero, would die such a brutal death. He couldn't possibly be the Messiah. Talking about this death and how unacceptable it was, the scholar Rutledge says this. She wrote a book on the crucifixion. I toned it down a lot, but if you want to read it, it's a good book. But this is what she said about the disciples' reaction. The disciples could not have seen this humiliating and inglorious death as an obedience to God a vindication of his mission, or a heroic martyrdom. 
On the contrary, contrary, precisely because it was a crucifixion, they could have seen it only as the utter discrediting of his claims before man and God. He had been judged a threat to the state by the secular authorities, but far worse in the disciples' eyes, he had been condemned by religious authorities, the guardians of faith and morale, as a blasphemer, deserving the godless death. It would be difficult to exaggerate the horrors of such an unedifying, irreligious outcome to a ministry in the name of God. Fleming is saying that when the people, the disciples saw the crucifixion of Jesus, the only explanation that they could come up with was, was, man, maybe he was really hated by God, despised by God. He must have done something so horrible. He was rejected by all people, not just the religious, but even the Romans rejected him. And even God must have rejected him. I think that was the, the word that was going through their mind. Because in Deuteronomy 21, it says this, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on a tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. There you have it. The Old Testament actually says if anyone dies on a tree, you're truly a cursed man by God. The Old Testament speaks of death on a cross as an abomination to God. That this person is not only uh, defiled, but he actually can defile the land. This is how ugly the cross was. And yet, Jesus, on Good Friday, went on that cross. Good Friday was the ugliest day for humanity. Jesus suffered the greatest of all punishments, save for the worst criminal. He was a suffering servant, not just because he was rejected by his friends and the religious leaders and the people in the town, but Jesus was actually rejected by God. And this for Jesus was probably the greatest pain point for him. Scripture actually says that darkness covered the land for three hours for three hours, it wasn't an eclipse. The land was covered in darkness. Signifying creation was even crying out that the darkness has swallowed the light. The true light that come to the world, the darkness, the sin, death has swallowed him up. It was the first time in history ever where the fellowship of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had been shattered. This is why Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt separation from God on the cross. He drank the full cup of God's wrath. He had taken the sins of the world all the evil was directed on one man, and that was Jesus, the Son of God. By this point, we ask, why? Why, God? Why does it have to be that way? Why did it have to be this way? I remember having conversations with people who have a hard time with Christianity. And a lot of them get hung up on this. Like They say, I, I just don't understand 
What kind of God of love would allow something like this to happen? How could God be a God of love and let his only son die on the cross? Is he even God? Couldn't God have just forgiven us for our sins? If he could do anything, was it really necessary to require this kind of sacrifice? And maybe for some of us in here, we feel that same question looming. This is why we don't like to talk about the death of Christ. We'd rather not talk about the wrath of God We don't like to talk about judgment at church because it makes us feel bad, uncomfortable. We don't like the idea of a God who is angry at sin. So we'd like to talk about love and forgiveness. So we'll do that. (laughs) Which takes me to my second and final point. The cross was the height of God's love. If the cross was the depth of our sin. The cross also represents the height and the glory of God's love. But we have to talk about death. We have to talk about these ugly things to talk about how beautiful the cross is. And the American church does not want to talk about both. This is what Richard Niebuhr, he is a Christian theologian and ethicist. This is his critique of the American church. He says this, a God, this is how we view God, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the administration of Christ without a cross, American Christianity. Niebuhr was talking about how the American church shies away from talking about the other side of the cross We love to talk about grace. We love to talk about forgiveness. But we get uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about the cost that is associated with God's greatest act of love and forgiveness. So here's the thing. For God to be a good God, for God to be a God of justice, he has to address the problem of evil. And he has to settle the debt that was accrued by sin. For him to be just, he has to deal with that debt. Otherwise, God wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be good if he just looked the other way and swept sin under a rug and made it disappear. You know, Pastor Tim Keller, he always uses the simplest of examples, and I can learn so much from him. But he gives this example of... um, of why God had to go this route. What is, why debt has to be settled. In his book, Reason for God, he says, you know, imagine this. What if someone, and it's not going to be up there. I'm just going to paraphrase. He says, what if someone, you know, borrows your car and they back out of your driveway. And as they back out of your driveway, they hit your fence and your gate. Actually, that happened. My mom does that. She like scratches our car all the time. But imagine someone who borrowed your car did that. And your insurance is not going to cover the gate and the damaged fences. Pastor Tim Clare says, what are you going to do? In that case, there's only two options. Number one, you make that person who hit your gate and fence and your car pay for the damages. It's a sensible option. Or number two, he says, is that you can refuse the payment and pay for the damages yourself. But in this case, someone has to pay for the damages. 
Just letting things go, ignoring it, doesn't make the debt disappear. And here, Keller says forgiveness in this illustration means that you bear the cost for the misdeeds yourself. You know, when we look at the world around us, it's so depressing. There's so much injustice, suffering, school shootings, wars, disease, mental illness, relationships being broken, isolation, natural disasters. And I think, I don't think the world is more evil than it is. We just have more access to that information. So it's constantly bombarding. Look what happened here. Look what happened here 24 7. And I think everyone could say, whether you believe in God or not, all of us can agree it shouldn't be this way. It's so sad. What's wrong with this world? What's wrong with people? I find myself saying that a lot. What's wrong with people? What's wrong with this world? This is not the way that God created it to be. And you're right. This world is not the way that God made it to be. It's been damaged by sin and death. And people are the problem. People who have sin are the problem. And this is why on Good Friday, God chose to do something about that sin, about the sinful nature of humanity. God chose to do something about the problem of sin. He didn't just watch from afar, wave a magic wand and make it disappear. He didn't do that. He could have, but he actually chose to come down into the brokenness, enter into all the pain. Every sin that was committed against God, every sin that was committed against humanity, Jesus chose to enter into that sin and experience that sin and take that sin upon himself. Every debt that had been accrued as a result of sin, Jesus weighed that on the cross. Jesus went to the lowest of lows. And even below, he went where no one would ever go. Why? Because he didn't want anyone to be stuck there. He wanted everyone to be redeemed and rescued. That's why Jesus came on the cross. He went there to rescue you and me. I want to know that Jesus didn't do this on his own volition. It wasn't just his idea, hey, Dad, I'm going to do this. Because the Father and Son were always one. They were united. John 14.10 says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. The plan to rescue this broken, messed up world through Jesus was God's plan. Together, in unity, they decided to do this from the beginning of time. Why? Why? Why, God? Why would you do this? Why would God have to go to such extremities to save us? Because our sin was that bad. It was that bad. I think we forget. 
We think it's not that bad, our sin, but it's actually, it was that bad. But Jesus also went there because God is so good. He loves us that much. He loves us that much. That's why he did it. And God's love for us is so hard to comprehend. It's beyond what we can imagine. You think the universe is vast, and you're like, wow, there's things I don't know about this universe. God's love is even greater than that. It's beyond. We can never wrap our mind around it. We think we can, but even then, we're misguided. It's so much bigger, so much more grand, and we can never fully grasp it. But that's okay. Even if you don't understand God's love, it's okay. But it's there. It's real. He loves you. Even when you don't understand, he loves you. And that's the truth. This love is not a simple concept. It's not easy. It's messy. It's going to require tissue <laughs> like me. It's painful. It's hard. Because, you know, the deeper you love something or someone, the more hurt and more you suffer for it. Lately, I talk about my son a lot, but I hope it's okay. I'm going to talk about him again. Because God uses my son somehow to teach me about him. Actually, God is always doing that, using one another to teach us something about him. He recently turned four. And he's so cute. He's the sweetest kid. So funny. But, <laughs> there's a big but, he's so stubborn. And he challenges me more than anyone else ever. And he's only four. I'm like, dear God, <laughs> how much worse can it get? My husband jokingly says it only gets worse. For example, you know, he, my son is a passionate, he's so passionate about play. He loves to play outside. He could wear a t-shirt in 40-degree weather in the rain, and he won't come inside. Three to four hours he needs just to run around. And he doesn't like food. He doesn't, he's not food motivated, which sucks. I can't get him to come inside. He just loves to play. He loves his freedom. And so whenever we let him play outside, and you could see I don't like to do that because if it's close to dinner time, there's often conflict. But it was a nice day. We let him play outside. And the other day, we went to our in-laws, and he played outside. And we have this strategy with him where we say, Xander, you're going to play outside for 30 minutes. I don't think he understands the concept of time. But we still tell them. You know, child psychologists say, okay, this is a good thing. I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. Give him time. 30 minutes. And then I go outside and go, Xander, 10 more minutes. like, okay. He doesn't know 10 minutes. Okay, five minutes. One minute, and then what do I do? Is, is he, like, getting ready to come? No. Ten, nine, eight, seven, three, two. Well, I actually count fairly, but I get to one. And by this time, he's laying down on the grass, in the wet grass, refusing to come inside. No! No! I don't want to eat dinner! And I was at my in-laws as they prepared this wonderful dinner. My son is throwing this crazy tantrum. What do I do? <laughs> just get my husband. He grabs him, goes upstairs, and he's kicking and screaming at us. He didn't want to come in. 
if 10 was the max volume, he was at level 12. <laughs> Just screaming. And I was like, okay, what do I do? You know, I sat and just watched him. I told him, you know what? It's okay to be upset. So I learned this from my friend, Hannah, who's a psychologist, child therapist. She says, it's okay. It's okay to be upset. It's okay to be angry. Mommy's just going to wait here with you until you feel you can get all of that out. I'll wait here until you're ready to eat dinner. I thought it was going to end in ten, five to ten minutes. It went on and on for 40 minutes, screaming at level 10, 12. No! There were parts of me that actually just wanted him to go outside and not come back in. Or I thought, should I just give him a lollipop and just call it a day? All these thoughts ran out. How could I end this misery? But I didn't do that because I know that wouldn't be good for him. So I just let him scream 30, 40 minutes, and I didn't yell back. I just sat there as tears ran down my face. It was really hard. He's only four years old. But he brings me to tears. To sit with him in that madness, that ugliness, when he's going crazy, and I'm his mom, to sit there, it's so hard. But that's when I know, man, I think I really love this guy. <laughs> because in that moment, it's not pleasant. I'd rather do something else, but I don't think about leaving him. I want to be with him. And it actually breaks my heart that he's having such a hard time. And I think that's the father's love right there. It's the grace of God that he gives it to me. I don't always have it, guys. But in that moment, he ex allowed me to experience his love. And God was saying, you know, you think you love your son so much because you sit through a 40-minute tantrum? Do you know how much I love you? You cannot imagine. Let me ask you, when was the, when was the time when you felt the most loved? Was it not when someone did something beyond what you deserved? Was it not when someone sacrificed and went out of their way to consider you, when they made time for you, even when they didn't have time and they were busy, or when someone bought you a meal or a gift when they didn't have much? Was it not when someone did something for you because they loved you and it cost them something? These examples are just a mere fraction of the way that God loves you and I. The way I talk about my son is just like a grain of sand in a vast ocean full of sand. God's love is that big that the little bits of love that we experience in our life, whatever that is, and we say that's the greatest love, that's just like a grain of sand on a beach. You see, Jesus Christ went to the depth of hell, a place was where God was absent, just so that we could be with him forever.
You know, in the Old Testament, the temple was a reminder for God's people of God's presence. Of all the places on the earth, the people of God knew the temple was where they can go to experience God. And in that temple, God had different structures. But the place in that temple where God's presence was the thickest, where he was most present, was this place called the Holy of Holies. And the thing about the Holy of Holies, it was, it was actually out of, out of reach. No one could go in there. There was actually this thick curtain that divided people and God. And only one person, one time of year, had access to the presence of God on earth. That was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it was the high priest who, after cleansing himself... He had to go through this really intense ritual, wear special clothes, and even then he wasn't good enough, so he'd have to do animal sacrifices just so that he can enter to the Holy of Holies on one day as a representative for all of God's people. That was only accessible on one day. But on Good Friday, it is said that that veil that hung on that temple that was a reminder for people to see the distance that we have before God, the minute that Jesus breathed his last, that veil was torn from top to bottom. Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be with God. This is what Good Friday is all about. God, who gave up everything to be with us, to be in a relationship with us. And maybe for some of you in this room, you just need to hear that, that God loves you. He gave up everything for you. You are worth it. You are worth it. Not because of what you've done. Not, the, not because of what you will do. Even in your failure, he says you're worth it because of what Christ has done on our behalf. He loves you. Don't let the enemy tell you otherwise. He loves you. And maybe for others in this room who know God's love, maybe God is asking us on this Good Friday now will you love others the way that I loves you? Will you be a church that lives out this kind of love to one another? That love is not a concept, but is actually a lifestyle, a behavior that models Christ and his sacrifice. Maybe on this Good Friday... God is challenging us to love our families in the way that Christ loved us. Maybe in your workplaces or in your school, God is asking you, could you love one another the way I've loved you? Or maybe there's someone who's hurt you, who's done something so unforgivable. God knows. He understands. He understands the pain. But maybe God is asking, 
Will you trust me to love them too? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your love and your sacrifice and your goodness. We are unworthy, but yet we are because Christ Jesus, you died for us. And it is because of you today on Good Friday that we have full access to you. What a gift, God. So today we celebrate you, God. Remember your love, God. And also remember what it cost you, God. And may our life have purpose, have meaning, goodness, as you reflect your love more deeply onto us. Help us now, God, to love you and not only love you, but help us to love one another as you have loved us. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.